Why don't you uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter three as we study through the Bible. Jeremiah three. Last night, of course, election night. Um, and the nation is still waiting with bated breath as we speak to find out, uh, you know, who the president of the United States will be. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, the pollsters, you know, if there's one thing we've learned in the last couple of elections is the pollsters know nothing. They should all be fired. <laughs> if they don't, they, they don't, they're not even close. Uh, and that's an interesting thing because you know, there used to be a day, I'm old enough to remember, remember several elections over the years, there used to be a day where they were pretty close and they kind of had some legitimate predictions and prognostications. But I love that you and I, uh, in a day where pollsters don't have a clue, man, I love that we have the prophets instead of the pollsters. I'll go with the prophets over the pollsters any day. And Jeremiah was the prophet that was telling the people the truth and what was interesting about that, it's almost like in some ways I, I sense, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but um, I sense that our pollsters are almost more wanting to tell people what they want to hear, you know, or what they think will be politically prudent to hear, or even if there's, a, God forbid, a sinister agenda behind why pollsters are doing what they're doing. I don't know about that, but, but I do know that it does shape things differently when the pollsters are saying this or that and the other thing. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I love that the Bible gives us the prophets and the Bible gives us prophecy. Don't forget, when, uh, you know, this is Wednesday night, uh, we're, gonna, we're in the prophet Jeremiah, but on Friday we're gonna look at Bible prophecy. And uh, I have a lot more to say about the election, uh, and probably more to say even to them tonight, because uh, we might know who the president is by that time. But all that to say, uh, you know, Friday night prophecy update, don't miss it, seven o'clock, right, right here online. Um, but as far as Jeremiah the prophet, I, you know, the, the pollsters almost say what people want to hear. Jeremiah was the prophet who said things that people didn't want to hear. And because they didn't like his message, they plugged their ears and didn't listen to a word that he said. Um, Jeremiah ministered for 42 years and not one person listened to a word he said, although he was 100% accurate. Um, he, what he said, what he foretold, tonight he's going to tell us really a lot about what's gonna, gonna happen to the people of Israel, what's gonna come down uh, in you know, Jerusalem and with the Jews. And uh, people are not gonna listen to a word he says. He's the lone prophet during this time. And so that's kind of where we pick it up in chapter three. Um, we looked at some of chapter three on Sunday and we saw that theme, backsliding Israel. And we talked about backsliding, it's perils, it's pitfalls, the problems. Um, and uh, backsliding is something that uh, you need to fix. And the fix is repentance and to turn back to the Lord. And you're gonna see that kind of language in Jeremiah chapter three of turning back to the Lord. Um, something that our nation needs to do, whether it's Biden or Trump, we need to turn back and repent no matter how um, you know, holy some people might think our nation is, it's not. We, uh, we, we can learn so much from Jeremiah's words here. Um, I feel like it's almost uncanny how Jeremiah is gonna nail down not only the Jews in, in Judea, but he's gonna nail us down in the United States of America with, uh, with great precision here in Jeremiah chapter three. Let's take a look. It says in Jeremiah 3.1, it says, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, 
Shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. We start off with some hard hitting things about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, now, uh, this, this, for a lot of you, you know, might be asking the question, yeah, what about that? You know, marriage and divorce and remarriage. And, and uh, people always ask that question. And um, first I wanna tell you, that's not really what this verse is about. Uh, you know, this question that is, plagues our culture. Um, once a person's divorced, can they ever be remarried? Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 19, by the way, when he said, Moses, this is Matthew 19, eight, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart suffered you to put away your wives' divorce. But from the beginning, this was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. And so from this word that Jesus was saying, um, you know, people say, once you're divorced, man, you're locked out, you're single for the rest of your life, or you're gonna be an adulterer if you get married again. Um, here's the thing about that. Um, is marriage, and, or I should say divorce, the unpardonable sin? Uh, the Bible says there's only one unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, but divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And so the thing is, the idea is unrepentant sinner is still in their sins. And that person is in that condi condition of divorce with an unconfessed, unrepentant heart, then they should not get married again. But if a person, you know, like here's an example. Some couple were married 20 years ago before they were even saved and they end up in a divorce situation. And then years go by and the person becomes saved and they confess their sins and acknowledge their failure in their marriage before they were saved. I believe the Lord forgives that person. Old things are passed away, all things become new. That is not the one sin that God's gonna hold that person's feet to the fire uh, for all of eternity. That's not gonna happen. So if you're a person who believes in forgiveness and that God wipes away our sins, old things passed away, all things become new. If you believe that, then I believe that there's a situation where the uh, person can be remarried. Um, there's some kind of legalistic pastors I've met that say, oh yeah, no, if you ever get remarried, you're a, uh, an adulterer, and, and I think that's wrong. Now, I do believe that's true if a person, uh, you know, is, it says, yeah, my other wife was kind of lame, so I dumped her and I'm getting married to this, this new model, uh, then that's, Jesus is talking about that, that's, that's just being adulterous. Now, the reason I go through that is because there's a lot of marriage and divorce in our world and people talk about that all the time. But Jeremiah's talking about something that was happening during their day that was quite sinister. And that is um, people were sort of taking marriage vows lightly. Uh, let's get a divorce. And then they go sleep with somebody else. And they, I'm tired of that person. Let's go back to our oldest. And, get, and they start sleeping again together. And marriage just became non-important. And they were sort of trivializing or minimizing the bond of marriage. And, and that's, um, the Lord was saying, that's what you guys are doing. But the Lord's just not, not as much wanting to make a case for or against that other than it's evil. What he's saying is in, in a sort of a picture and analogy sort of way, he's saying, that's what you were doing, Israel, to me. I'm your husband and you have put, up, put me away and then you go and sleep with another and then you wanna come back to me. Now, um, there's an interesting thing, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, that last phrase in verse one, some translations make it sort of sound like 
um, the Lord is asking people to return to him. Yeah, you've divorced me and slept with another, but some would say, yet return again to me, saith the Lord, like come back. The Lord inviting you to come back. Other newer translations say, and you have the audacity, it's almost like more like you have the audacity to come back to me, are you kidding? Like, like there's a question mark at the end. And, and so which one is it? Is it some of the newer translations that say, you know, yet you return again to me, say the Lord, like, are you kidding me? Or is it the Lord saying, even though you've adulterated yourself, return to me? Well, I think both could be true, uh, by the way. I think that it is audacious for us to be, you know, uh, like the Jews, let's just say that, you know, adulterating themselves with Moloch, Chemosh, Ashtoreth, Baal, all these gods and goddesses of the Canaanites, and to think that they can just kind of you know, on, on uh, you, know, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they can party down with Baal. And then on the Sabbath, they go and do their Passover in Jerusalem on, you know, Friday night to Saturday through Saturday. They, they do the Sabbath and they do the holy rituals. We'll see that's what they were doing here in those times. And, and the, Lord, the Lord could say, are you kidding? You're gonna go sleep with all these other gods and goddesses and then you think you can just come back to me? That could be true and it, it is audacious. But at the same time, the other is true as well. I, I do believe, in fact, the Lord is gonna woo them back and say, please, you know, dump off your sins and break off your relationships with these gods and goddesses and, and return again to me, saith the Lord. I think both are true. Um, but if I had to pin down linguistically uh, in the original Hebrew, what, what he's saying, I think he's inviting. It's not the one where he's saying, are you kidding me? No, it's, it's more like, I think he's inviting saying, you know, even though you've married another and you've come back and, 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 and the, the, the law of the Old Testament. By the way, that, that law that he's referring to here in verse one go, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses three and four, about how you don't get, you know, get divorced and then go sleep and marry another person and then divorce them and come back to your original marriage. That was for, forbidden in Jewish law. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses three through four. That was the truth of the matter. But so God is sort of using his old law to point out the craziness of their sins. At the same time, you might say, well, Brett, if God is wooing them back and saying, yes, please come back to me, is that God breaking his own law? And, and the analogy that's being used here, because he's, he's saying, please come back to me, even though Deuteronomy 24 says you can't. Well, this might just be a good illustration of how love always supersedes the law. No man ever kept the law and was made righteous by the keeping of the law. The law kills, the Bible says. And they're just rules that we cannot, we fail. I love how here God sort of implies that, man, the law does kill you, but he supersedes the law and love supersedes the law. And he's lovingly inviting them back uh, to come back to himself. Um, that's the analogy, by the way, over and over that Jeremiah is using of that of the husband and the wife, that God is the husband, that Israel uh, and Judea, they're the wife of God, the Jews. And again, I remind you that the New Testament Christian church, we're called the bride of Christ, different relationships, Gentiles, church, bride of Christ. The Jews of the Old Testament, the wife of God. And, uh, and that's why Jeremiah constantly employs this imagery of marriage and divorce and, um, and all, all this stuff about them being unfaithful or the adulterous uh, wife of God. Well, I love this because this, this sort of gives us that reminder of his mercy, 
And we'll, we'll touch that again uh, this evening as we go through this. Well, he goes on in verse two. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lying with. In the ways that uh, hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withholden and there have been no latter rain. And thou hast a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me? My father, thou art the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldest. Verse five is saying, you've done the most evil things you could even imagine. Whatever you could think up, you did it. Um, you know, you, you, you've done as bad as you can uh, in evil. And that's the, the Lord's acknowledging that. Um, and he's, he's uh, calling them out really on their sins. Now, there's a phrase here that's used that I find interesting. Um, and um, I remember, you know, last time I taught through this, I was like, wow, what does that mean? And I just kind of read through it and just didn't even really acknowledge it because <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Um, but this, this whole idea of the horror's forehead, what are we talking about there? Uh, some of you are like, Brett, let's not talk about that. I think you should do what you did last time and just go right on to the next uh, section. Well, there is something about this that kind of caught my attention. And especially as you read through the whole Bible, you start to realize the Lord talks about a person's forehead a lot in the Bible. And as it turns out, the forehead seems to be um, sort of something that God talks about. And it, it seems to be in some ways a battleground. Your, your forehead, a battleground, yep. Um, you know, Jeremiah 3.3 3 here talks about the whore's forehead. Now, what is that? Um, before I couldn't tell you, but uh, as it turns out, I did some deep research on this one and it's uh, hard to find this, but, but actually what it means, it's sort of an idiom of sort of a, um, a bold sinner who refuses to be ashamed by their sins. It's almost like they become hardened uh, toward uh, the evil conscience or that conscience of knowing that, man, what I'm doing is wrong. And a person can get to a place where their, their, uh, their thinking is uh, just like, they don't even recognize that what they're doing is shameful. Um, and that's this idea of the whore's forehead. It was associated with immorality and lack of shame. That's the idea there. Now in Ezekiel, we'll read here in a few weeks, when we get to Ezekiel chapter three, verses eight and nine, listen to this. The Lord says, behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant uh, harder than flint, I have made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, for they are rebellious as a house. So there's an there's a idea of these two groups of people that are rebellious and one's the Lord hardens in an in a armor type sense and forehead against forehead, that's the idea. Um, so God made the prophet Ezekiel's forehead righteous and strong against the foreheads of backsliding Israel. That's what we're gonna see in Ezekiel chapter three. Now, the forehead is seen all throughout the Old Testament, but then you think about the New Testament, are foreheads ever mentioned or, or talked about? Well, as it turns out, it becomes a big deal in the last days, uh, even in the tribulation period. Uh, Revelation chapter seven, verse three, it says, God seals his servants in their foreheads, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our gods, of our God in their foreheads. 
You know, and you, when, when you heard me talk about revelation in the forehead, some of you are thinking, the mark of the beast. Um, that's true, but isn't it interesting that before the mark of the beast really gets kicked into gear, the Lord says, my people, I'm gonna do something to their forehead. And he's gonna put the, his seal, um, you know, sealing the servants of God in their foreheads. Um, Revelation 14, one, and I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. That's an interesting thing. The 144,000, by the way, is not um, Jehovah's Witness from you know, the Watchtower Society. As they will come to your door and tell you that. Uh, that's totally whacked. Um, uh, the 144,000 are listed there in the scriptures uh, by the tribe. They're Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, well, Brett, I believe the Jehovah's Witnesses are the lost tribes of Israel. There are no lost tribes. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, so don't, don't listen to that. There are gonna be Jews during the tribulation are gonna be um, sealed by God uh, in their foreheads with God's seal. It's gonna be something that's kind of amazing. Um, but isn't it interesting God's interested in their foreheads? And then of course, as you look at you know, Revelation 13 and, and the whole narrative of the mark of the beast and the antichrist and how he's gonna try to get their, his seal, his mark in their forehead. I think that there's this, there's this battle of the foreheads in the Bible. <laughs> um, so what does that all mean? As it turns out, the forehead, you know, um, just neurologically is kind of interesting. Um, according to the Discover Magazine writer, Robert Sapolsky, the prefrontal cortex, that's that front part of the brain, right, in the, right between your eyes and up a little bit, uh, your forehead, um, it's the region that plays a, a critical and central role in things like this, self-discipline, gratif uh, gratification, postponement, uh, putting a rein on one's impulses. Again, Sapolsky reports this in Discover when he says, violent sociopaths appear to have an insufficient meta uh, metabolic activity in the prefrontal region and uh, damage to the prefrontal cortex, such as that created by strokes or caused by disinhibited uh, frontal um, uh, personality. The person may become apathetic or childish, silly, hypersexual, or bellicose, uh, scatological or blasphemous. That's, the, that's what Discover Magazine says that happens to a person that has something, an issue in their um, you know, prefrontal cortex. According to G.C. Bosley in an article titled The Effects of Small Quantities of Alcohol, he said, among social drinkers, alcohol causes shrinkage of the frontal lobes, the center of moral discernment. And that shouldn't be a shock uh, if you kind of hang around people that drink a lot. <laughs> you kind of see that, that they lose their inhibitions. And that's this idea, uh, which is kind of interesting. And, and man, um, uh, I don't know about you, you know, uh, but one of the reasons of many why I don't drink alcohol, it's not some legalistic reason from the Bible, um, but it's, it's more uh, having to do with addiction and with helping my friends who are addicted to things, you know, not stumbling a brother, but it also has to do with my brain. I need as much brain as I can get. Um, you know, it's like uh, Solomon's mother said, oh, Lemuel, it's, it's not uh, for kings, you know, or princes to be given to, to wine or strong drink lest they you know, uh, forget the law and pervert good judgment. That's that prefrontal cortex that gives you good judgment. Uh, and that's why she said, don't be given to wine. you know. Uh, and when you drink alcohol, it destroys dendrites in your brain. And I don't know about you, I need all the dendrites I can get. 
So, um, but, but all that to say, not, it's not just an alcohol thing. There seems to be something about a person's, that part of their brain and thinking, whether it's you know, neurological, physiological, or just strictly spiritual, I don't know. But if you make a study of this, and we don't have time to go any further than this tonight, but if you make a study of it, it makes you wonder about the, 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 the forehead and, and what is the Lord doing with that? And why is that such a big deal in the Bible? And it will be an issue uh, in the end times, as it turns out. The mark of the beast versus the Lord putting his seal upon his people during the tribulation period. Now, we won't be there for that. Uh, we'll be in heaven as the rapture of the church will have taken place and we'll be with the Lord. But the people that you know, follow the Lord and serve Jesus will, uh, during the, uh, the uh, tribulation period, they will have that seal of God uh, put in their foreheads, as it says there. Well, anyway, enough on horse forehead. Sorry to dive into that one, but that's the idea. Kind of that unrestrained, uh, unashamed uh, sort of boldness to sin. That's the idea there. So the Lord's saying, will he reserve his anger or hold back his anger forever? The answer, no. There's gonna come a time where God's wrath will be poured out. Well, that goes to verse six. It says in verse six, the Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hast done? She has gone up every high mountain and under every green tree and there hath, then there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Interesting, uh, we have to remember that during this time period of Jeremiah's prophecy, you know, years earlier, uh, you know, centuries earlier, uh, Israel and Judah, the nation Israel split into two. It's the 10 Northern tribes, the two Southern tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah, you know, they were Jerusalem, the Southern, but then the Northern 10 tribes, they were wicked exceedingly. And they were called Israel, the other one's called Judah. So, you know, here Jeremiah is saying, you know, backsliding Israel, look what happened to them. And Judah, you're her sister. You should have learned from her, watching her do her thing. And then the Assyrians coming and putting hooks in their noses and drawing them up as captivities into Assyria. And really the Northern tribes were uh, really largely wiped out. Now this is, by the way, remember I mentioned the lost tribes of Israel? People like to claim that. Uh, everybody from you know, some of the Mormon doctrine and Jehovah's Witness doctrine to um, you know, uh, some people like the oh, the Da Vinci Code and a bunch of wacko stuff. Um, watch out for this thing of the lost tribes of Israel. No such thing. It's not the British. Uh, it's not the, uh, Mor uh, the Mormons. It's not the, the uh, Incas or the Mayans. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of funny things out there about the lost tribes. But the reason it's, it's dumb is because there aren't lost tribes. Did you know the Bible tells us when the Northern 10 tribes were taken off into captivity, these groups that try to talk about the lost tribes, they say, we never heard from them ever again, and they were lost. The problem with that is the Bible says that a bunch of them didn't, they, they stayed behind. During the reign of Jeroboam, when he made the golden calf worship in the north, when he was the king during that time, do you remember a bunch of people said, we can't do this, we're Jews. And so those people from the Northern 10 tribes came back down to the south and lived in uh, you know, the south with Rehoboam. 
And, uh, and so there were, and also when the Assyrians dragged off the Jews to the north with hooks in their noses, they left behind, according to the Bible, the sick, the old, and the lame. Um, so there was a bunch of people left behind. It wasn't an entire dragging off of all the Northern tribe people, but there was a remnant left behind. And those people were all parts of the 10 Northern tribes. They were not lost. Um, and so some of those people were uh, you know, killed or taken into captivity and they were assimilated into Assyrian culture. But there were many who stayed back and there were still you know, people of the tribe of Dan and Naphtali and Reuben and Gad and all those, they were all there. Um, and, and, um, and that's a, a fallacy to think that, that once the all, they all were taken away and never to be seen again, not true. There are no lost tribes of Israel. I hope you're careful on that one. Now don't send me letters. There's people even in our church who've written books on the lost tribes of Israel. Don't wanna hear from you. I've heard all those arguments. It's too much, too much time to talk about something like that. But it's, it's uh, don't be sucked into somebody's convincing you that the Israeli tribes were all lost. And by the way, people say, well, how are we gonna know who the 12 tribes are in the, book, in the tribulation period? You said there'd be 12,000 from each tribe. And how are they gonna know that because of the lost tribes and they don't even know who they are? God can sort that out. Uh, there's no problem sorting out who the tribes are. Uh, God knows who's from what tribe. Um, there's, there's a few tribes that people do know what they're from, especially uh, because of certain last names. If you're, of the, if you're a, a Jew of the name of Cohen, um, we know that was a group that was from the tribe of Levi. So uh, the Cohens are the priests uh, and what have you. And so it's kind of interesting. I have a buddy who's got the name of Cohen and, uh, and we call him the rabbi, you know, and, and because he's, he, and he comes from that kind of, you know, priest order of the priest, Aaron. He's a descendant of, you know, uh, the priests. But, but all that to say, um, here the Lord's comparing the North and the South. And it's almost like the North and the 10 tribes were the, the, the big sister uh, of, the, of the South, Judah. And God through Jeremiah saying, man, didn't you learn anything by watching your sister? Um, all of you that are the firstborn in the family, uh, I think the Lord's gonna give you a special reward in heaven. Um, I've noticed the firstborn, they're usually the guinea pigs. <laughs> they're the ones that parents are just trying to learn how to be a parent. Um, and then by the time they're done raising that, that, that child, then the other kids, they kind of know what to do and what not to do. Uh, also, the younger siblings, which I was, I was the youngest in the family, I learned a ton of stuff by the you know, things that I shouldn't do. When, when my sisters would do something and they'd get in trouble as little kids, I'd go, oh, I better not do that. So I either learned not to do that or to do it co more covertly than they did. <laughs> but all that to say, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that the firstborn is sometimes the tough one. Well, it's like the 10 Northern tribes, the Lord saying, man, you could have seen and learned from your sister. That's what he calls that there. Um, you, your backsliding Israel sister. Um, and yet her treacherous sister, verse eight, last part, Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. They're making the same mistake uh, that the Jews of the North made. And he's gonna actually um, make it even worse. Uh, we'll see that as we continue here. Verse nine. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with the stalks. Um, that's with, with um, you know, the, in the groves of the trees, the stalks of the trees and in the um, places of worship. Um, the, the word lightness there um, could be translated to fame. It came to pass through the fame of her whoredom 
that she did all this, uh, you know, adultery. Verse 10, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, uh, saith the Lord. This is where it gets really troubling and sad because this does speak to the day that we're talking about here. We know uh, right there, you know, from, from verse uh, six that we're, Jeremiah is prophesying during the time of Josiah. And there was revival going on. If you read the story of Josiah, there was real revival going on during this time where Jeremiah is prophesying, but it's a fake uh, sort of revival. Uh, and I believe Josiah had a real revival in his heart and in, in the land of Israel. Um, I, think he, I think he did a real, real thing in his own heart. But it seems as Jeremiah is speaking, they were only doing sort of a fake pseudo um, you know, revival. And man, I worry that we have become in modern day Christianity good at uh, sort of convenient Christianity or or um, you know uh, stuff that looks really impressive, and we're you know we're we're uh, making sure people see that we're uh, responsible socially, and that we're checking all the boxes, and you know. Uh, but but I, I do worry: is it a, is it sort of a feigned faith that we have to really watch out for? Um, man, you know, some some of you might be thinking, well, Brett, you're grouchy. You're always talking about doctrine, and you're always talking about churches that aren't sticking to doctrine, and, you know, you're a grouch and all this. Well, that's kind of what they thought of Jeremiah, honestly. It's not fun being Jeremiah sometimes, but, uh, but you, if you're going to go through the Bible, you've got to cover these things that, that come up. And, and this fake faith is something that, that Jeremiah calls out the men of Judah and says, man, you know, you have not turned to me with your whole heart, but feignedly or fake, saith the Lord. Um, there was a pretense of faith, but not a real faith. This reminds me a little bit of Matthew chapter 15. Remember when Jesus was, um, you know, quoting from Isaiah the prophet, when he, he called out the people, he said, this people draweth near, this is Matthew 15, eight. This people draweth near unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines of the commandments of men. Jesus calls out the people of his day with something that I think some of us could be called out today for having sort of a, a fake faith. Um, we, we draw near to the Lord with our lips saying, oh, we worship you and we love the Lord and we're Christians and we're awesome and doing this and this. But man, I, I worry that um, there's not a real repentance of sin, not a real acknowledging of the Bible and of doctrine because here he says, it's in vain they do worship me, teaching not doctrines of the Bible, but doctrines or teachings of, of the commandments of men. And Jesus calls them out for that. And it was a fake religious sort of behavior that they were doing in Jesus's day and they were doing in Jeremiah's day. And I think we see that also in our day. And we have to be really careful about that. Um, we need solid doctrine. It needs to include the whole counsel of God, all the scriptures of God, not just one little notion or one little truth. It's very important. Um, people can make up their own religion if they want by just using a few scriptures. But if you're uh, really wanting the full counsel of God, you gotta look at the whole Bible. I think that's important. So they came not with a whole heart, but sort of half-heartedly is the idea. And verse 11, the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. In other words, Judah is gonna be worse off 
<clears throat> than even Israel, the Northern 10 tribes, because they've sort of justified themselves saying, yeah, we're good, we're good, we love the Lord. It's all good, but, but they're really walking in evil. And it's not even like the Northern 10 tribes were even pretending. So it's, it's like the Lord is saying, the person who's sort of pretending or play acting as a, a follower of God and a lover of Jesus, if you would, um, the play actor is more guilty than the person who's just saying, no, I'm a sinner and I acknowledge that. Uh, it's almost like you're gonna be held to a greater accountability there. Well, he goes on in verse 12 and says, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. <clears throat> For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will not take you one of a city, and uh, pardon me, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with the knowledge and understanding. Now, this is great. This is what the Lord in his mercy does. I love this passage of verses 12 through 15, because this is God. He comes on strong through Jeremiah in verses one through 11, backsliding Israel, and you're gonna be held accountable and you're, you're, um, you've got the whore's forehead. Uh, that's pretty radical language, right? But I love that the Lord says, but if you turn backsliding Israel, return, verse 12, uh, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. We, by the way, that was our main text on Sunday uh, as we were talking about backsliding. The answer is repentance. Now, repentance is sort of defined here in our verse 13. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. Verse 14, turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. <clears throat> this is what uh, you know, repentance is. It's to turn. You've heard us use the language like this. Repentance means to do an about face. That means to turn. 180 degree, different direction. So when you're sinning, you're going this way. I'm gonna go sin. And then repentance means that's sin. Acknowledge your sin and say that's sinful. And then do an about face and go away from that. And the backslider is, is you know, the one who thinks they can be put in neutral where the magnetism of sin is gonna continue to drag them closer and closer. To be a, a, a believer in Jesus and a follower of Christ, you need to repent and turn and go the other direction. Um, without repentance, uh, there really can't be forgiveness or salvation. Uh, you gotta repent of your sins. Um, be careful when you share the gospel with people because sometimes I've noticed there's this propensity for people that love the gospel and we, we, we do. We love the gospel because man, the Lord will save the worst of sinners and forgive them for all their sins. But if we neglect to talk about what repentance is, we're leaving out a key element of the gospel message. Repentance, you know, um, well, Brett, I just think that we need to tell people uh, that, uh, you know, it's all good and lo the Lord loves you just the way you are. Have you heard that? Um, and, and there is a certain truth to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Even before they were even forgiven, the Lord, the Lord does love people. But 
sometimes I think we, we do it wrong when we say, you know, um, the Lord loves you just the way you are and we forget to remind them, but he doesn't wanna keep you the way you are. Um, he loves you uh, in your sinful condition, yes, but he doesn't want you to remain in sin. So he, what he wants, he loves you so much that he wants you to repent and do an about face and turn away from your sin. Without repentance, you're still moving in a sinful direction and that's gonna be uh, bad. You know, you can't just keep doing your stuff. Now, there, there is a balance there. You can't just say, well, if you're, uh, if you're gonna be a Christian, you gotta clean up your act and never sin again. Well, then who could be saved? Um, but the idea is that we need to preach repentance. You know, and so that's something you always hear us talk about here on Sunday mornings. You know, when I'm inviting people to come to Christ, I'll say to repent of your sins. And, 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 and people take repentance and they do too much with it saying, well, repentance means you're gonna be perfect and never sin again. Well, then nobody can do that and nobody can be saved. So what does repentance mean? It's defined right here. Uh, I love what it says. Acknowledge thine iniquity. Turn, O backsliding children. That's repentance. You're acknowledging my lifestyle, my direction, the things I've done, the things I'm doing. I'm acknowledging that as sin and it goes against the Lord. So I'm gonna do an about face and I'm gonna try to go get closer to the Lord and what he wants from me. And over time, man, the Lord starts to work on us and chip away some of those old sinful habits and those sinful things that we are drawn to. Um, we're not perfect, we're perfectly forgiven. And repentance doesn't make you perfect the blood of Jesus Christ makes you perfect. You're robed in righteousness, your sins are forgiven, but practically we're a work in project. You know, we're his workmanship uh, and it's a work in progress. So don't mistake this idea of repentance as meaning that you've cleaned up your act 100% and I never have sinned again. Nobody can do that. Repentance means just what it says here, acknowledge your sin. Lord, I acknowledge that this thing that I've done, these things that I'm doing, that's sin, I acknowledge it. And then turn back to the Lord and go his direction, not the direction of sin. That's what repentance is. Uh, and don't forget to include that when you're sharing the good news, the gospel with people. Well, I love how he says, oh, if you turn, you know, if you repent, backsliding Israel, verse 14, I will take you, one of a city, two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Now you, you, you get a sense that Jeremiah's gaze is going past the local application. <clears throat> excuse me, and, and more to a, a long-term fulfillment of prophecy. And, and we'll nail that down even as we get further. But he's gonna talk about the millennial kingdom, ultimately when the Jews will be saved, <clears throat> excuse me, when there's a, a whole new deal. And, and, and that's where verse 15, we start talking about what the millennial kingdom's gonna look like. Um, but that's not gonna happen until the second coming of Christ, when the Jews are gonna be restored, all of Israel's gonna be saved, and that's where Je Jeremiah, in, in, in a, a good section coming up here, this is all a section talking about that coming kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. And he's gonna draw people uh, back to Zion or Jerusalem, as it says here in verse 14. But verse 15, one of the things he's gonna do is give them pastors, according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. I love that. You know, as a pastor, this is an important verse, but also I think as people who are told to have pastors. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and the early church, one of the things that the church was marked by is having pastors. Um, and um, the word pastor in the Hebrew here is ra'ah in the Hebrew. That's what it, the word is ra'ah. And it means feeder of the flock. 
Um, and that's what a, a good pastor will do in a church is to feed the flock of God. And they feed with the word of God. Um, uh, and that's what it says here. I will give you pastors, this will be in the millennial kingdom, that, will, uh, that are according to mine heart, which will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And that's what we need more of today. I think the church of Jesus Christ could use more shepherds, uh, under shepherds. You know, Jesus is the great shepherd, but a pastor can be an under shepherd under the great shepherd that's supposed to be the feeder of the flock. And we need to be feeding them a, a steady diet of the word of God for healthy sheep. And uh, the further away we get from that, where we give man's understanding, not the Lord's heart and not knowledge and, and understanding from God, but we, we feed them man's understanding. Man, we're just feeding them cotton candy and it's just a total waste of time and the sheep are hungry. That's one of the things I think about our fellowship that I'm learning over the years is um, we're not flashy here. Um, you're not seeing us, you know, with, you know, smoke and lights and me up here with a fancy suit, sweating, running back and forth on the stage and being really, you know, crazy and, and exciting. Um, but, you know, as people say, man, you're sitting on a stool and you've got your Bible open and you're just reading the Bible expositionally, like, and people like that, people are actually watching and, and it's, it's kind of funny. You know, what I'm doing now is, is sort of an anomaly, which it wasn't. You know, back in the J. Vernon McGee days and when people were teaching verse by verse through the Bible, people used to do that. But it's funny to me, uh, it's not really funny, it's actually kind of tragic, but that people are acting like I'm doing something very novel. Wow, this guy's teaching verse by verse through the Bible. Um, that used to be a thing but now it's not. But here's the thing that uh, people say, why, why do people you know, wanna pile into the church? You know, Pre-COVID, man, this building was just packed and we were doing four packed services and our online presence was growing and then COVID came and then our online presence doubled. Um, and uh, like, it's, it's just weird to see how many, uh, the reach that Athey Creek is, uh, uh, and people say, what, what's the secret? You know, um, there's no secret. I think the sheep are hungry. I think that's just that simple. Uh, it's not flash, it's not, wow, very interesting and amazing, or uh, my good looks might have something to do with it. No, I'm just, <laughs> that's a joke right there. Um, no, it, it, in fact, I think I have nothing to do with it. I, what, what actually it is, is it's the word of God that people are hungry for. And so, you know, after a steady diet of pollsters this last week, I think that a lot of people are like, you know, on Wednesday night, I'm gonna get into the word and there's something about that. If you've been reading the news or seeing the news, that's cotton candy. And there's something about a Wednesday night, diving into scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. There's something about that that just gives you like a nice big, you know, ribeye steak. <laughs> and people are hungry for that, if you like ribeye steaks. And if you don't, you're probably not even saved, but just kidding, just a little joke there. Uh, but anyway, no. Um, that's what's gonna happen. You know, when the millennial kingdom comes, it says that I will, the Lord is gonna give shepherds, pastors, the ra'ah um, is the Hebrew word, the feeder of the flock. And he's gonna impart and feed them with knowledge and understanding. Oh Lord, may there be more of those guys in the modern day church. Um, well, verse 16, it'll come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord neither shall it come to mind, neither shall it, they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall um, that be done anymore. Now, 
you gotta understand, like uh, we, we read the Ark of the Covenant here for a minute and people are like, whoa, what about the Ark of the Covenant? And, um, and suddenly we're all into Indiana Jones. You know, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Will the Ark of the Covenant be found? And you're like, yeah, bro, it's in some giant warehouse uh, where they rolled it back after, you know, Indiana Jones found the Ark. Well, that was the movie, but that's not true. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Some of you say, well, Brett, the Coptics have it there in, in Egypt or Ethiopia. You know, Ethiopia has, has the Ark of the Covenant. Or the Jews, there's rabbis that have deep under Jerusalem, they have stored the Ark of the Covenant. And there's all these people that claim to have the Ark of the Covenant or know where it is. But it's interesting to me that Jeremiah the prophet, during a time when they had the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in, in Jerusalem, he makes this prophetic statement about the Ark of the Covenant. He says, the Ark will, of the Covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it. This is like the most holy relic of all of Israel. Why would Jeremiah say such a thing? You know, you, this might almost be perceived as almost blasphemous to a Jew in Jeremiah's time to say, the Ark of the Covenant will be remembered no more. They won't even think about it, it won't even come to mind. And the Jew would say, are you kidding me? We think about the Ark of the Covenant all the time. Um, it was the centerpiece of worship, if you would, there in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And, um, you know, it was at the mercy seat where the Lord says, there will I meet with you. And the blood of, of the lamb that would be slain would be sprinkled on the mercy seat and the 10 commandments inside. And like it, the Ark of the Covenant is a big deal. So what's Jeremiah saying? The context of this is the millennial kingdom. I remember I told you the pastors and the Lord's gonna gather the Jews back to Zion, the pastors of the Lord's heart, but the Ark of the Covenant during the millennial kingdom will be forgotten. And some people might say, well, why? The answer I think is simple. The Ark of the Covenant, what was it a symbol or a reminder or um, even a visible, tangible representation of anybody? If you said God's presence, you were correct. Uh, the presence of God. It didn't represent, by the way, the power of God. That was the mistake they made when they brought the Ark of the Covenant that day in the Philistine battle. Uh, the Jews dragged the Ark of the Covenant out and said, it will save us, get the Ark, it will bring us victory over it. Remember the Philistines took it and that whole story. The Ark of the Covenant, as it turns out, wasn't a representation of God's power. It was a, a representation of God's presence. And when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, that woman, she gave birth to a son and she named him Ichabod. Why? Because the word ik, abad, means no glory. The, the glory or the presence of God had departed from Israel. Now there, the Ark of the Covenant came back uh, after being in the land of the Philistines for a while. There's a story there. But what, what, where is the Ark of the Covenant now? Um, some tradition, it's not in the Bible, but some you know, religious tradition says that Jeremiah, um, you know, close to 586 BC, when the Babylonians came to conquer Jerusalem, they believed Jeremiah and a small posse took the Ark of the Covenant down to Ethiopia. And that's why even today, there's legends of the Ark of the Covenant floating around somewhere, Ethiopia and some church um, uh, and what have you. Um, but we don't know that for sure. And you can read all kinds of articles about where the Ark of the Covenant is thought to be. Now it's of my opinion that they're not gonna find it. Because if they in modern days found the Ark of the Covenant, not only would we protect it and preserve it and put it in some museum or the Pope would grab it or something like that, um, we would put it somewhere where it'd be the most holy relic in all the world. And there'd be a problem with that first. The problem is people would worship it. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, 
because we find junky stuff that's not even real and people worship it. Uh, you can go to Jerusalem and find pieces of wood that you can buy. This is a piece of the original cross of Christ. And people buy them. Um, it's been said that, you know, the amount of wood that's been sold, uh, little tiny pieces of wood that's been sold uh, to tourism uh, in Israel in the last hundred years, you could build the Empire State Building with the amount of wood that's been given that was the cross. So I guess the cross was giant. Uh, and they just had little pieces. No, it's just stupid. That's not real. Can you imagine what we'd do to the Ark of the Covenant if we found it? We'd worship it as a god. Um, but why will it not be seen or used in the millennial kingdom? There's gonna be Ezekiel's temple in the kingdom. There's a place even, you could say, there's gonna be a holy of holies. Why would there not be an Ark of the Covenant? The answer is simple. The Ark represents the presence of God in the Ezekiel's temple. Guess who's in the temple? Jesus, the Messiah. His presence will be there in the temple. There's no need for a symbol of his presence because his presence is there. Now, this brings up something that I think is worth consideration. Could it be, and I'm gonna word this maybe, I don't mean to sound condescending, uh, but I, I, I wanna sort of make a point here. And that is, could it be the more mature believer, the person who knows the Lord the best, if you could even say that, could it be that they need less relics and less symbols and less, you know, things that representations of, of uh, could it be the more mature believer actually doesn't need to uh, have a cross in their church or a Mary or a Jesus statue or, or even some of the other symbols that we think are so sacred and holy um, that the Bible says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Isn't that funny that one of the 10 commandments says don't make any images or shapes of things in heaven or earth or in below the sea. And yet we, we do that. If you go to the Vatican in Rome, it's got I would say tens of thousands of relics and shapes and representations of stuff. As it turns out, uh, there in Colossians chapter two, remember there were people saying, you guys need to keep the Sabbath and all the feasts and the festivals, representations of things coming in the future. And the Sabbath and, and all those things, the lamb and the Passover and all this, the Seder dinner, all representations. So the, the Jews in the early church were saying, you Gentiles need to do this. And then Paul says, Oh, you, you know, Colossian people, listen to this. In Colossians chapter two, he says, let no man judge you concerning new moons and feasts and festivals and Sabbaths. Um, why is that? Because then he says, those things were just a shadow of what was to come and the, that which was to come was Jesus. And we, the church of Jesus Christ, have Jesus in the church and it's Christ in you. So you don't need the, the, the Seder dinner because Jesus is with you. You, you don't need to look at the shadow anymore because the real deal is there. And, and that's the problem. I, I think the mature believer doesn't need shapes and relics and uh, those kinds of things as much as maybe the, the, the person who says, I need to look at a cross to remember Jesus. Um, just something to think about. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is gonna be forgotten during the millennial kingdom. That's kind of an interesting thing about a relic. Um, do you remember the relic of the pole with a brass serpent that Moses had made that saved them from this fiery serpents during the wilderness wanderings. If you remember that, um, it saved a lot of people's lives. When they got bit by the deadly serpents, they looked on it and lived. Remember that? 
But about 500 years later, King Hezekiah, they had that thing leaning up somewhere and people would worship it, the, the pole that Moses had made. It, it'd be like our Declaration of Independence. You know, we, a couple hundred year old document that uh, is a relic for the United States. And it's something that, you know, means something. Well, that would be like this pole. So Hezekiah sees people kissing and worshiping it. And so he takes Moses's brass serpent and he grinds it up and breaks it all up into pieces. And he says, Nehushtan, Gazuntite there, Hezekiah. No, Nehushtan means it's just a thing of brass. It's nothing. Yeah, but Moses made it in the wilderness. It's, a, it's our most holy relic of all of Israel. Yeah, he smashed it into pieces and said, it's just a thing of brass. Stop worshiping it. Worship the Lord your God. Um, isn't it interesting that all those things tend to become things that people worship? Be careful, Christian. We don't need relics and shapes. We need one or maybe I would say two things that Jesus told us to do something, to remember something by. One is the ordinance of communion. When you eat dinner uh, and you have the bread and you have the cup, eat and drink and remember what Jesus did for you. That's one of the things we get to do. Uh, isn't it funny that we, nobody's worshiping a piece of bread and a cup, you know, at least they shouldn't. Um, but it is a great reminder of what Jesus did for us. So that's ordinance number one. Ordinance number two, baptism. Going into a river and being dunked under the water is a ordinance of God that reminds us uh, that our old sin nature is passed away and buried. Our, our old man is crucified with Christ and we're resurrected to a new creature in Christ Jesus and our sins are washed away. It's this beautiful outward sign of what's actually happened to you spiritually. But other than that, the Lord really didn't encourage relics and images and shapes and stuff. And I believe the mature believer needs Jesus alone uh, who's dwelling in their heart and filling their life. That's all you need right there. So um, interesting, there's people to this day feverishly looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah says, nope, nobody's gonna find it. And it's gonna be forgotten in the millennial kingdom. Verse 17, at, the t at that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. So this, this is where you absolutely know we're talking about the millennial kingdom here, right? Uh, because that's the only time where it's official, where Jesus becomes the, the king of kings sitting, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That's what all verses 16 and 17 is really telling us so far. So it's at that time, the millennial kingdom, millennium, shall they call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. So again, millennial kingdom, there's an end of transgressions according to Daniel chapter nine. So that's why they're not gonna do evil stuff anymore. And in those days, verse 18, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I've given for an inheritance unto your fathers. The north and south that we started our study talking about, Israel and Jerusalem and, and Judah, um, they're gonna be joined back together the, uh, during the millennial kingdom. Uh, there'll be one nation under God, but we're not talking about the United States. We're talking about Israel and Judah. Uh, that's gonna be great, verse 18. Um, so they're gonna come from the north of the land. I've given an inheritance to your fathers, but verse 19, but I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the host of nations. And I said, thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. 
Now we're back to the Lord saying, but you've done all this stuff bad. Verse 21, a voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications for the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return ye backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we are come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers for our youth, from our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, we lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God and we are fathers from our youth. Even unto this day have not obeyed the, the voice of the Lord our God. So this is just that imploring, God imploring Israel, return, repent, come back to me. But if you don't, you're gonna go through some real trials and you're gonna be taken. Um, and then, but ultimately the millennial kingdom's coming where all of Israel will ultimately be saved. That's all there in chapter three. But he continues in verse one of four, if thou will return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou will put away thine abominations out of my sight, then thou shalt not be removed. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him and in him shall they glory. Um, you know, basically this is gonna happen when Israel will turn back to the Lord. It hasn't happened yet. By the way, Zechariah the prophet explains what this is gonna look like when Israel turns back to the Lord. Let me read to you there in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Um, the Lord says through Zechariah, um, uh, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his children. In that day, there should be great mourning in Jerusalem. Then in Zechariah 13, verse one, uh, in that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. There's gonna be a washing and a cleansing and a, but, the, but when, when Israel sees that they blew it and missed the Messiah, when they say, who is this person we've pierced? Where did this guy get his wounds later on? It says in Zechariah, he received that in the house of his friends. And the Jews will weep when they see Jesus, the crucified Messiah and realize he was the one that they crucified. But that's, that's gonna be the first mark of their returning to the Lord that's being talked about here in Zechariah chapter three and four. So verse three, for thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Here the Lord's talking about it. Now, do you remember in chapter three, he said that you know they haven't returned to the Lord with a whole heart, but they feignedly said, uh, tried to act like they were having a revival, but it was fake. So here again in chapter four, he, he's talking about the heart, but he gives two sort of illustrations, verse three and four. Illustration number one is the untilled heart. He says, you know, uh, to Ju Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Now, of course, Jesus in Mark chapter four would talk about this whole, um, you know, 
the sowing of the seed and uh, the soil of your heart and the word of God penetrating your heart and taking root and bringing forth good fruit. But some was sown among thorns, some was on stony ground, some the birds of the air came and plucked it away, but some of it brought forth good fruit. And here that, that, that analogy really was brought up by Jeremiah. So what do you do? You get your heart ready, till the soil. That's what it's saying here. Break up the fallow ground and don't sow among thorns. So that was the first thing they needed to do is, is um, to deal with their untilled heart. But the second thing they need to do is deal with their uncircumcised heart. Verse four, circumcise yourselves unto the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Um, of course, circumcision was the cutting away of the male uh, you know, flesh. Um, and it was um, very uh, you know, symbolic for the Jews to be a Jew, you'd be circumcised. But the idea of uncircumcision was sin. And so there was this spiritual circumcision that uh, Jeremiah talks about. And as it turns out, this would mean more for us as Gentiles, because as Gentile church, we're not told to be circumcised, you know, for religious reasons uh, in the New Testament. But we are told to circumcise our hearts. And I think Paul in Romans chapter two, verse 29, borrows Jeremiah's analogy of circumcising of the heart. It's Romans 2, 29, but it says, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not the letter of the law, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You know, Paul's dealing with the Romans who are Gentiles saying, man, circumcision is not as much of the flesh, but of the heart. And he's borrowing that theme from Jeremiah. So you got untilled soil of the heart and uncircumcised heart. Uh, and that's what Jeremiah is telling the people. This would have been radical for a Jew to hear Jeremiah talk like this, by the way. Verse five, declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities, set up the uh, standard towards Zion, retire um, uh, or strengthen is another way of, uh, and stay not for I will bring evil from the north and great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate and thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. From, for this, gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us and it shall come to pass at that day, saith the Lord, that thine, the heart of the king shall perish and the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astonished and the prophets shall wonder. Man, this is a heavy word to the Jews in that day. Run for your lives is what he's saying. Blow the hornpit, retreat, get your weapons, but they're not gonna help anyway. You know, it's like, it's like they're all doomed. That's what he's saying. Um, the lion is coming. Does anybody know who the lion is being talked about here? It's not the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a little L here, the lion. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon used that symbol of a lion for his own standard? Um, uh, the Babylonians, uh, they used the lion as their symbol. Daniel chapter seven, verse four, kind of speaks of that as well. So this is Jeremiah foretelling who's coming to destroy uh, Judah and Jerusalem. The Babylonians are on their way, the destroyer of the Gentiles. It's a very ominous section here, uh, verses five through nine, of doom that's coming. 
But verse 10, then said I, ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem saying, ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. Now what's going on here? Um, Is this Jeremiah saying, Lord, but you said there was gonna be peace and you've deceived us, you've greatly deceived us. Is that what's going on here? Well, this is a tricky uh, thing to interpret. Uh, What's interesting, when you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the old Hebrew Bible, uh, it was written before Christ came, the Septuagint. Like 270 years before Jesus came, they had the Greek translation of this. And and the the translation of that in the Greek was basically putting it that false prophets were saying this. Uh, It's like Jeremiah was the true prophet saying, man, you guys are toast, run for your lives. It's gonna be bad, Babylon's coming and they're gonna destroy and level Israel and Jerusalem. And then the false prophets are saying, oh, but Lord, you've greatly deceived the people and Jerusalem saying you have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the soul. And that's probably what's going on here. Jeremiah is saying, oh, these false prophets. Now, uh, by the way, uh, look at chapter five. Let's, let's jump ahead for a second. Chapter five, verse 30 and 31. And it says, a wonderful and hor- horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means that my people love to have it so. That what will you do there in the end thereof? The prophets were prophesying falsely and the people loved it. We don't wanna hear the truth, we just wanna hear good stuff. Itching ears, tell us stuff we like to hear, but not the stuff we don't wanna hear. And this verse 10 is probably those false prophets saying, you the Lord have deceived us. And that's not really what happened. The Lord through Jeremiah is telling the truth. Verse 11, at that time shall it be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the high places of the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan nor to cleanse. Even a full wind from those places shall come unto me. Now also I will give sentence unto them or against them. Behold, he shall come up as clouds and his chariot shall be as a whirlwind and his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe unto us for we are spoiled. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? For a voice declareth, from Dan and publish affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make ye mention to the nations, behold, publish against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and give out their voice against the cities of Judah. As keepers of a field are they against her roundabout because they have been rebellious against me, saith the Lord. Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness because it is bitter, because it reaches unto your own heart. Basically he's saying north to south, it's been declared and you guys are toast. That's really what he's saying. Um, And then um, verse 19, there's a question of who's speaking. Some would say it's Jeremiah the prophet. Others would say the Lord is speaking now about what's about to happen. Um, I believe it's it's both because if Jeremiah is saying it's probably God putting it in Jeremiah uh, and Jeremiah is sort of representing the Lord, that could be, or it could just be the Lord saying this. But in verse 19, he says, my bowels, my bowels. Uh, now, Brett, what does that have to do with anything? Well, he's basically saying, I have a stomach ache. Like, like you know, you're, 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 it's like when you have that gut ache because something horrible is about to happen and you're, you know, you're sick to your stomach. That's the idea. 
So the Lord saying, my bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled, my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people is foolish. They have not known me, they are Scottish, no, 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 sottish. Uh, The word sottish is an old English word for silly or foolish. He says, they are foolish children and they have done, uh, they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth and lo, it was without form and void and the heavens and they had no light. See, this kind of does sound like God's talking here because who is it that saw the earth before it was without form and void? The language here should be familiar to you Bible students, Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth, verse two, became tohu vabohu. Remember that? Without form and void. So the Lord's saying here in verse 23, I saw it where the earth had no light. Verse 24, and I beheld the mountains and lo, they trembled and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld and lo, there was no man. All the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. For thus hath the Lord said, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make it a full end. For this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken it. I have purposed it and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen, and they shall go into the thickets and climb upon the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken and not a man dwell therein. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Thou clothest thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou rentest thy face with painting, In vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee. They will seek thy life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail. And the anguish of her that bringeth forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion, that bewaileth herself, that spreadeth her hands, saying, woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers. This is for sure talking about what's coming by the Babylonians to a backslidden Jerusalem and Judah. And it's pretty horrifying. The imagery here is bad. But it could be also a dual fulfillment in when uh, the tribulation period and the uh, Antichrist is gonna come and make war in Jerusalem once again. And uh, some you know, Bible uh, scholars and eschatology buffs see an end times application of some of this as well. And it's not hard to see it if you read the book of Revelation and you kind of see the correlation. Oftentimes you see dual fulfillments of prophecy in the Bible. So there you have it, chapters three and four of Jeremiah. I didn't get to chapter five tonight as much as I hoped, but uh, at least we got through two, amen. Let's pray together. And so Lord, tonight as we close out this service, I pray you'd bless your people. Uh, May this word be good seed fallen on good soil. Um, Lord, all the things we talk about in these Wednesday nights, Lord, so much to think about and chew on. Um, But Lord, we, we need so much in these days we live to know you and to hear the truth and not be 
fooled by misinformation or disinformation. So Lord, may we cling to your word. May the seed of the word find good soil tonight and bring forth good fruit. I pray blessing on these, your people who've taken time to carve out time in their schedules to, to do a Wednesday night Bible study. Bless them, Lord. We pray, we thank you for reading your word is a blessing and we're blessed as people to have it. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.